There are many ways to measure success. Popularity, profitability, durability, and standing the test of time overall, which is a form of durability, but why split hairs? When it comes to various forms of media, one of those ways that success can easily be marked is if the mothership winds up spawning several smaller ships to help carry on the legacy of their parent. Or, to put it in TV terms, Spin-off! Is there any word more thrilling to the human soul? Throughout TV history, whenever a show proves to be popular enough to warrant one, a follow-up show, or spin-off, is created to not only keep things moving in the world of the main program, but also see just how much more mileage they can get out of a potential franchise before inevitably running out of gas. We mention this because we pointed out that not all spin-offs are created equal, and that sometimes there's a red-headed stepchild among the group. Joni loves Chachi in an all-new episode. Things are good. And Johnny. An old boyfriend eyes Joni. Things are bad. Joni loves Chachi. But that's just prime time. Television runs 24 hours a day, and some of those hours happen to involve the daylight. And when the light of day tries to shine on something popular, you either see growth from photosynthesis, or enough heat beams down on it that it becomes a wilted version of its original self. Especially if the wilting involves pen and ink. Mumbly and Dudley be underjoyed to see Glover. That's overjoyed. Whee! And now, it could be worse. This is Tallahell. It's time now for another one of our lists. Our subject this time, the top six dumbest animated adaptations of primetime TV shows. Yes, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. If a show was popular enough to have spin-offs in primetime, it only seemed natural for there to be spin-offs during the daytime as well, particularly those that aired on Saturday mornings and weekday afternoons. We really only have one qualifier for this one. The shows in question have to be derived from a previously existing TV series, no matter how directly or indirectly it comes from the source material. Which would also explain why this is a top six list this time instead of our usual top eight. Because as it turns out, many of the shows that I actually wanted to cover turned out to be derivatives of derivatives. In other words, a few shows I was hoping to cover turned out to be spin-offs of TV shows which were themselves spin-offs of theatrical films. And that would violate the top six things that we wouldn't review many, many years ago that we established. Also, if you're wondering why we're calling this list the dumbest instead of the worst, that's so we avoid getting mixed up in another rule of our don't review list, that of the guilty pleasures. Because I know that there will be some people out there that actually enjoyed some of the shows we're about to mention. But just because they do doesn't mean we will. And we're sorry, not sorry in advance for pissing off some of those fans. However, if there happens to be any behind-the-scenes dirt in any of these choices, I'll be sure to give them extra attention. And just so we fulfill our nine-circle quota for the week, many, if not all, of the shows that we're about to cover here land a pair of one-two punches. First, for gluttony and greed over the fact that these shows, and sometimes the stars of these shows, are obviously trying to cash in on their parent brands, which resulted in TV airwaves being saturated with more related content. 
And because these shows are cartoons, that means they will be deliberately playing fast and loose with the source material. So much so that even the most ardent of fans of the original shows could consider their animated counterparts nothing but fraud and heresy compared to the originals. Now that we've hit our minimum requirements, let's hit the drawing board. I kind of feel that we have to start with this one by proxy. Not because this one's low-hanging fruit for us personally, but also that this selection takes care of some additional unfinished business from long ago. If you remember our fifth episode, then you already know the story of how the Dukes of Hazard stars John Schneider and Tom Wopad temporarily left the show over a contract dispute, and that a pair of emergency replacement Dukes named Coy and Vance had to fill in for half the season. What you may not know, however, was that one of the fringe benefits of being a part of that emergency backup casting was that it would be those same counterfeit Dukes that would lend their voices to a Saturday morning spinoff that would take place during the same season. The Dukes of Hazard got their own animated spin-off. And yes, the fake Dukes were the lead voices. Or at least, they were at first. But the reason why this is on the list isn't just a footnote to a previous subject. Rather, something else that took place behind the scenes that also had to do with a work stoppage. In 1982, major animation studios, including the company behind the Dukes, Hanna-Barbera, went out on strike over fears of losing work to animators overseas for cost-cutting purposes, a practice that Hanna-Barbera practically invented, but, you know, I digress. Eventually, the strike ended after 10 weeks in the fall of 1982, but this work stoppage also meant that certain shows wound up delaying their premieres, and the rush to get everything on the air on time just meant a rushed production all around, and the Dukes were no exception. show had everything going for it, the Duke's cartoon was practically doomed from the start, even when Wopat and Schneider came back on the live-action show and was able to voice themselves for the second season. To say nothing of the fact that the mix-down on this particular show was insane. How insane? Well, I'm gonna play this clip for you, and if you can even figure out what half of the people are saying in this clip, you got better hearing than I do. Out of all 
the cash-ins on TV franchises, this one is surprisingly the least flagrant of the bunch. But extenuating circumstances pretty much force our hand here since the counterfeit Dukes were involved. Saturday morning, the Dukes premieres, racing around the world with Big Bad Boss Hog right behind them for the fastest, funniest action. The Dukes premieres Saturday, February 5th. Number 5. While deviations from the default factor greatly in most of these picks, I present to you an exception to the rule where the deviation is perfectly okay, but it's the execution of the production that warrants the entry. But first, a little backstory. Feel free to ask your grandparents what that girl was. The short version, long before Mary Tyler Moore redefined what it meant to be a career woman, Marlo Thomas practically did the same thing, albeit with a little extra flirtation, gloss, and eventually a long-term boyfriend that could have been her husband, were it not for the fact that Thomas wanted to end the show after only five years on the air. For those five years, however, Thomas's Anne-Marie would try to achieve success as an aspiring actress, even if it meant getting cast in lesser roles or taking on temp jobs in the process. Though never a rating smash, the show still had a decent enough fan base by the time the show ended in 1970. So much so, that the powers that be at the ABC network thought that she might be that girl for a younger audience. Unfortunately, because of just how long it takes to make anything animated, on average it takes about nine months for a single half hour of TV to be made from script to screen, we wouldn't get to see that animated adaptation until roughly three years after the series ended. As they say, good things come to those who wait. So, Thomas and a cast of voiceover veterans helped bring that girl back to life with pen and ink. Oh, I've got to get the linens, but I don't know which door to open. I suppose this key fits the right one. You're late! <gasps> Wrong door. I'll try this one. Where's the book? Phew. I guess I'll try this last one. Welcome to the Bunny Club, Alice. I'm your personal rabbit, Donald. Do you have the linens? Of course not, silly. They're on the table. What table? The multiplication table. The results were kind of chaotic. In Alice in Wonderland, did Alice buckle her shoes from right to left, from left to right, or from right to wrong? Hmm? <laughs> now, who's next? That girl. The production, called That Girl in Wonderland, was one of the rare cell-animated ones by longtime Christmas stop-motion monolith Rankin Bass, and considering just how few of the things they did over the years involved pen and ink, you could kinda tell just how much they let the quality fall by the wayside. For starters, this was one of the very early examples where an American animation production got outsourced to Japan, the same cost-cutting technique that Hanna-Barbera protested against in their 1982 animator strike. But before you think to yourself that I'm knocking Japanese animation or outsourcing to save a buck or anime in general, slow your roll. I think anime is one of the most pure forms of art there is, even if sometimes the stuff that they put out is anything but pure. And I think you have to be 18 or older for that. And while the practice of outsourcing animation has become far more commonplace these days, back in the early 1970s, the process felt a little too primitive. 
It's because of this primitive nature that that girl in Wonderland winds up looking somewhat alien in comparison to any other cartoon that aired at the time. Seeing Anne-Marie look like something straight out of Kauai kind of reminds me of the time when Jimmy James tried to read his own book after it got translated from Japanese back to English. I never doubted myself for a minute, for I knew that my monkey-strong bowels were <laughs> girded with strength, like the loins of a dragon ribboned with fat and the opulence of buffalo dumb. <laughs> And it's because of these creative choices that I feel it may have distracted a little too much from an otherwise okay story where Anne-Marie gets a job with a book publisher and tries to combine existing fairy tale classics into more modern retellings. It's a story about a young, imaginative girl who works for an important publisher. And when she's supposed to be working on this book, she daydreams. And in her fantasies, she becomes the beautiful heroine in all the fairy tales. Stop! And conquers all the witches and dragons and evil stepmothers. Stop right there! And always wins the handsome prince. It mixes up a whole lot of fairy tales into one story. I would call That Girl in Wonderland. That is absolutely the most brilliant idea I've ever had. But again, even though it eventually became more common practice, the animation just felt a little too jarring for the era. And also for our own tastes. Oh, Freckle, I'm sorry I rushed out without you. But I had to clear my head to figure out this book idea. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. Somebody for a very important date. Look, Gretel, a gingerbread house. I'm late. I'm late. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have got to start this with one book at a time. Number four. Okay, I'm not gonna lie here. Uh, for this next entry, I'm gonna need to place a long, long, really long distance phone call. Partly because I would feel uncomfortable talking about these next shows. Yes, shows. They all tie for fourth place. But I still would feel a little awkward talking about them without some expert advice. So, let me just ring up the old telephone here. And... Let's dial the number. Oh, let's not forget the area code. Hey guys, it's me. Me who? Check your caller ID, you know who it is. Oh no, not this guy again. Calm down, I'm not here to drag you two down here again. I just need a little help in covering a micro-subject on one of my lists. Preferably at cameo length. And what's in it for us if we help you? Well, how about the likelihood of never having both of your souls be damned for all eternity? And I'll even throw in a little cameo fee. Hmm, so... What do you want us to talk about? In a roundabout way, I want you to describe in, oh, let's just say, six minutes and 66 seconds time, everything that you know about all, yes, all, of Gary Marshall's failed animated spin-offs for Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, 
and Mark and Mindy. Ready? And go! We've got it all together now, gang. The Fonz. His doggy name, Mr. Cool and the Good Group. One flaky time machine and a future chick named a cupcake. Well, as with every popular piece of media, Happy Days had a cartoon spinoff. The Fonz and the Happy Days Gang. Animated by Hanna-Barbera in... November 8th, 1980, until November 28th, 1981. I guess because they thought that, like, the original Happy Days wasn't child-oriented enough. Happy Days was pretty darn child-oriented. I can speak from definite experience here because I watched Fonz and the Happy Days Gang when it was new. Oh, wow. And it was, as you say, it was very common at the time for pop culture properties like sitcoms and things to have animated versions that were even kiddier. I don't think even more child friendly than the uh, primetime version. Obviously, Happy Days had a large child following in primetime. But with a Saturday morning show, they could go full on fantasy. Oh, now the gang got zapped into that time machine and they're like traveling through time. My, my. They do not think where that machine is going, but they sure hope to get back to 1957 Milwaukee. Can you dig it? Yeah. Peter, can I, I, I can ask you this. Uh, did you genuinely enjoy the show on any level? Like, I had fun watching it, and I, I definitely had fun, like, trying to figure out where this fit in the Happy Days timeline, because it's it's very confusing. Uh, the premise of the show is that a future chick named Cupcake, and future chick is the term that they use. A future chick named Cupcake. And they're in this time machine that's going from century to century and place to place, and they're never getting back home, basically, because then the show would be over. Although Fonz did turn up as an animated character in um, the second season of the Laverne and Shirley animated show. Laverne, let's join the army! Where do I sign up? I'm with you! A commanding pig! Characters are being sent around the world to different, basically kind of stereotypical locations. Uh, both Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley did uh, Aladdin-type stories set vaguely in the desert. Uh, the Happy Days episode is really like Aladdin because there's even a Jafar type of character in it uh, who wants to steal this gold. They're always protecting people's gold and treasure and things like that. And the one we haven't talked about yet is the Mork and Mindy one. And weirdly, of the three shows, the one that's actually, like, most down-to-earth and closest to the original show is the Mork and Mindy one. Yeah, the, the, the Mork and Mindy one, uh, Mork is a teenager in that one, which kind of raises some questions because it's established in the original show, Mork and Mindy, that Orkins basically age backwards. So, like, when you're a baby, you look like Jonathan Winters. Now, you had him as a teenager. He looks like a grown man. He looks like full-on Robin Williams, like, 
you know, body hair all over the place. He looks like full on Moscow on the Hudson, Robin Williams. And yet he's attending a high school, Mount Mount High School. But he's living with Mindy in what looked like the same rooming house that they are that they live in in uh, the TV show. Are they like two high school kids who are like living together in a house? I I don't. I I I think we're overthinking this. No, because because but Mork and Mindy on the show. Just to clarify, they look like grown ass adults. They look like grown Pam Dauber and Robin Williams. They do not look like kids. They're not drawn like kids. They don't talk like kids. They're they act and look just like you remember them from the live action show. These are fun early 80s cartoons they will entertain you ironically or unironically and for me it was unironically I just like them for what they were (laughs) perfect your cameo fee will be in your paypals momentarily thanks by the way how did you get our phone number (laughs) hello this is hell we practically invented the NSA we would have found you eventually (sighs) I'm getting a burner phone after this Ugh, me too I thought telemarketers were bad. And while we thank both gentlemen for their thoughts on the suspension of disbelief taking place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Boulder, Colorado, this would be a good time to suspend ourselves from the belief that these, and our next three picks, ever existed. We'll take a closer look at the cream of the crap... After the break... Up in the air, Fonzie's cool, not a square. Fonzie, Fonzie's a Fonzie. It's Fonzie from the Happy Days Collection with thumbs up action. Fonzie, new from Migo. This week on Telehell's premium content of the Dan. Okay, so this might actually be a first here because we're presenting to you outtakes from the show that you are currently listening to right now. If you haven't already heard them, go to our Patreon and listen to the full hour-long discussion that Joe Blevins and Peter Freeville from These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast said about the Gary Marshall cartoons. I asked them for at the very most 15 minutes of stuff to play with. They gave me over an hour. Enjoy. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. Number three. You know you're going to have a strange animated adaptation when one of your characters happens to be a talking animal sidekick. The Dukes and Boss Hog had one. Fonzie, Laverne, Shirley, and Mork had pets of their own, too. And to an extent, even though they were playing animalized versions of their own characters, 
Even that girl in Wonderland had them, too. But at least those characters were actual members of the animal kingdom, and Moore could get away with having his pet because it, too, was an alien. Now, let's take the human world and the world of the supernatural and run it through a Cuisinart. But who do we get to push the power button? Someone who, herself, had her own brand of alliterative power. Maybe the world is blind Or just a little It's a little hard to explain why Punky Brewster was as popular as it was when it premiered in 1984. But, in TV executives' never-ending quest to come up with shows that would be relatable to a young audience, Punky didn't exactly break the mold, but there were still hints of realism in certain places. The tale of an orphaned girl adopted by a kindly old man may seem like a play out of the Disney playbook of suffering leading to happy endings, but perhaps because of just how much cynicism there was on display during the mid-1980s, perhaps Punky seemed like the kind of comfort food that people would tune in to see each week. Of course, when one tries to translate a family sitcom into a Saturday morning cartoon, suspending one's disbelief is only fair since cartoons can practically do anything. But even a suspension of disbelief has its limits. Reasons I can only guess were the results of the writers and animators at the Ruby Spears Production Company coming down with a really bad case of the flu. Punky Brewster's animated counterpart was given her own talking pet, even though her dog Brandon was always there by her side anyway. The rest of the show's main cast appeared in the show as well. But it's that new addition that places this show on the list. <sighs> Buckle up, folks. Meet Glomer the Gloamy. We're going to be squishy by the time we get home. Unless... <laughs> no, Glomer genius or what? Super Glomer. As the theme song to this show indicates, he's a creature who lived at the end of a rainbow in a magical land called Shondoon that Punky happens to encounter one day. No, you did not accidentally consume hallucinogens. This really was the plot of the show. To be fair, this... Thing is the reason why there's even a punky cartoon in the first place. Because if it was just a carbon copy of the sitcom, the show would be slightly dull, but at times a little traumatic. Like, who would ever want to see this moment given the cartoon treatment? How many times today have people asked you about getting locked in a fridge? <laughs> just a couple, but you know. Just a couple. Yes, but I reassure them that it's all good. That fridge back there, I don't even really go near it. So to that regard, I kind of understand why there had to be some sort of outer-worldly element out there. What a shame that this creature makes Polly Shore look and sound like a piece of dry toast in comparison. A rainbow! Shandun! 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 Oh, it's gone! Rainbow gone! I'm never finding Shandun! Wazo, sorry, English no too goodly. Ah, oh, I Gloomer from village called Shandun. I am Gloomly Leprechaun Helper. Oh, no problem. Gloomer have, oh, let's say, five, six clicks on before Rainbow Lee. What problem? I am Biffin. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, very easy. Every 
everyone can do in Chandu. Very, very easy. Now, you showing me your village? I call it the okay. But why are I wearing the bling patch? You know, bling patch. I'm getting bling patch. Hey, bling patch. And if Frank Welker, the voice of Glomer, happens to be listening to this, I don't mean any disrespect. I love your work. You've been at it for a long time. But you had to realize what you were doing, didn't you? It's kind of a paradox in a way. Without Glomer, a punky cartoon wouldn't be necessary as much as it wouldn't exist. But exist it did. And it's because of Glomer that the punky cartoon became memorable for the worst possible of reasons. Oh, sorry, punky friend. I stay put, not moving, sit right here, glued the back. Oh, uh, one other thing, and this is probably the most minor of nitpicks, but for some reason, possibly to differentiate itself from its primetime counterpart, the show is officially billed with the title, It's Punky Brewster even though the word it's It's. appears nowhere in the title. Sort of like back when syndication had stricter rules. They had to rename the reruns so that nobody confused them with the existing shows in prime time. Not an actual complaint or anything, I just kind of felt the need to bring that up before others did. Moving on. Number two. This next pick is not quite the dumbest concept we've come across, but perhaps it is the most unnecessary cartoon concept ever. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. We all know the story of Gilligan's Island. Lord knows the theme song every week would constantly remind us about how a group of castaways wound up getting stranded during a three-hour tour where the weather started getting rough only for the tiny ship to run ashore on an uncharted desert isle. And for the most part, it was goofy fun at best, highly implausible at its worst, the biggest implausibility being cited by comedians since the dawn of time. And what's the deal with the professor? He can make a radio out of a coconut, but he can't fix a hole in the damn boat. Now, take that same argument and apply it to the laws of both physics and rocket science, and somehow you wind up with Gilligan's Planet. We've got a brand new story about the castaways. We left our tiny island after years and months and days. We built a little spaceship. It's crude, but it could fly. We left the and lost our way between the stars and sky. A show that takes the existing trope of getting lost in space and loses so much more in the process. Starting with that initial argument Dana Carvey's Jerry Seinfeld impression just brought up. Yes, the professor seems to be a master at wireless communication, but he lacks the basic carpentry skills to patch a hole in a boat. Hold it! 
We probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, but this episode was actually originally recorded all the way back in October of 2021. We mentioned this because this episode had seen a number of production delays, and we're not going to point fingers as to how or why this show got delayed. It just did, and that's why you're kind of hearing it right now. And we wanted to bring this up because we had already done an episode about Gilligan's Island, and in particular, we pointed out why the professor could not fix the boat. And if you want to hear that explanation again, feel free to listen to episode 54 or visit the YouTube channel of Rick9G, whose video he let us borrow in order to explain why the professor can't fix the boat. Sorry for the confusion. Enjoy. And yet... He builds a rocket ship that blasts the rest of the castaways to outer space? Oh. Here on Gilligan's Star Planet! Oh yeah. Maybe because all the Apollo missions in the 1960s gave Americans something to be hopeful for. But for reasons that we can only blame on misguided marketing, it seemed as though animated cartoons, especially in the 1970s, found themselves making a move... In space! And while there were some shows out there that used their space setting correctly, some shows were just downright baffling, ludicrous, and, uh... You got another word, Ghost of Casey Kasem? Well, this is fucking ponderous, man. Ponderous, fucking ponderous. And while there were some viable candidates to put in this position, like, say, Partridge Family 2200 AD, or Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space, but while they are viable candidates, at least those shows still had the common sense to air while the live-action counterparts they were based on were still somewhat popular, either on the networks or in syndication. Sort of a, if-you-build-it-they-will-come situation. Gilligan's Planet not only involved original series creator Sherwood Schwartz, but it was also put together by two of the unsung heroes of animation, Lou Scheimer, Hal Sutherland, and the production team of Filmation Studios, who, while they did manage to put together some memorable shows, could sometimes be considered even cheaper productions than Hanna-Barbera. But that's another story. To write the show, the team hired some up-and-coming writers by the name of Paul Dini and Tom Ruger to pen the episodes. And if any of those names sound familiar, it's because both Dini and Ruger would eventually put together far more superior programming later on in the 90s. We're tiny, we're toony, we're all a little loony. It's time for Animaniacs, and we're Which brings us back to why we put this show on the list in the first place. Not because of how dumb the premise is, though granted that does not help and it does factor greatly, but because of how unnecessary this show was in 1982. Granted, the original Gilligan's Island had long become a staple in syndication by that time, but it wasn't half the juggernaut a show like Star Trek was by that point. What makes this show unnecessary is that it takes characters that we know and love, takes away simplicities that made them great in the first place, and mutates them into something that makes fans of the original wonder what would motivate them to do these kinds of spin-offs in the first place, aside from hoping that the cast can pay off their collective mortgages. At least 1974's New Adventures of Gilligan kept things down to earth, though, as is the case with this and any other Gilligan spin-off, Tina Louise would wisely sit them out. Granted, she wanted more money than her co-stars, but that's another story. 
By this point in time, pretty much everybody involved in the original Gilligan either wanted to move on to do other things, or were also getting a little too old to do those things. And yet, no matter how hard they tried to escape its gravitational pull, the cast were pretty much doomed to be castaways for the rest of their lives. And nowhere is this more evident than their phoned-in performances. Oh, wait, Skipper! There's something in the way! What is it, Gilligan? My head! (laughs) Gilligan's stuck, Professor. Could you help me pull him out? Sure, Skipper. Stop helping so much! Heave-ho! Heave-ho! Look, Thurston, they're planting trees. Actually, lovey, I think they're drilling for oil. Uh, I say, Skipper, may we join in? Also, minus points for them using a laugh track in a cartoon. Thoughts that I've made crystal clear all the way back in episode 17. And yet, this is still not the dumbest idea for an animated adaptation that we've come across. And coincidentally, it's also not the only one involving Filmation Studios, and especially Sherwood Schwartz. Number one. <sighs> just, just play it, goddammit. Here's the story of a lovely lady. Was bringing up three very lovely girls. If you thought the Brady Bunch Variety Hour was the worst thing to have the Brady name on it, it still is, by leaps and bounds. But that doesn't mean any of the other spin-offs that were derived from the mothership didn't have a crack at being the worst as well, or at least in this case, the most implausible. Meet three sisters. Now meet the brothers. Greg's a leader. The Brady Kids took place during the production of the main show itself, and starred all six Brady Kids, minus their parents and their maid, because even they knew that they were better than this. Which brings up a bit of a dilemma. Without any parents around to monitor the kids, somebody has to be there to play the role of guardian. And when the parents and their maid are not available, what's the next best choice? A dog, two pandas, and a bird in a wizard hat. As you do. How the dog, the pandas, and the magical wizard bird came to be the Brady's pets slash guardians? Well, see if you can follow this logic. It turns out that in their pilot episode, the Brady kids set off on a hot air balloon race, as suburbanites tend to do, obviously. A series of circumstances take place that find the kids inside a cave on an island where they meet the magic talking bird. Interlopers. Whatever that means. Hi, we're the Brady kids. Who are you? Marlon, want your cracker? <laughs> we were listening and we know you can talk better than that. Shucks. I figured maybe you were a rescue party. I'm getting fed up with this island. But you can fly off the island. Hilarity ensues for a little bit until they escape the cave and get chased by giant yellow crabs, which then transform into purple 
alligators who try to stop them from opening a giant space egg that... Okay, did somebody slip me a copy of Mad Libs for Schizophrenics? Giant crabs, man! Marlin, do something, quick. I'll give it a try. Walla walla, Oshkosh and Kalamazoo. Be gone, you monster, shoo, shoo, shoo. Just my luck. Alligator shoes. What are you doing to my creatures? It wasn't me, dear. Oh, gosh, there they go again. Seriously? I mean, I'm, I'm watching this, and it's not making a lick of sense. Anyway, a giant space egg that contains two borderline offensive jabbering pandas. I think they're trying to tell us something. I don't believe it. Pandas. Other episodes include the times when the Brady kids accidentally grab hold of a spaceship, go on a cattle drive, foil jewel thieves, encounter ghosts, meet Superman and Wonder Woman... Uh... Uh... You know, I think I may need to be in a better frame of mind in order to appreciate this show. Because... Watching the show all by itself is enough to have parts of my brain replaced by bubble wrap. Excuse me for a second. (laughs) The Abominable Snowman? Man, this island really is weird. Voice, an abominable snowman, and now I'm beginning to understand two pandas. Now, to be fair to Gilligan's planet, at least they had the convenience of outer space for there to be strange creatures to interact with. The Brady Kids is pretty much the forerunner to the Punky Brewster cartoon in terms of implausibility, but it's the strength of the implausibility that winds up overpowering Glomer in terms of overall annoyance. Once you have a magical, talking, wizard bird with the voice of Larry Storch, and two borderline racist-sounding pandas living in suburbia, that pretty much leaves creatures who act as a sidekick to a 12-year-old girl in the dust. See? Like I said at the beginning, nobody believes the real story. But we know it's true, don't we? But implausibility aside, that's not the only reason why I'm putting the Brady Kids at number one. Because it wouldn't be a Brady Bunch-related production without trouble behind the scenes. Once again, this was put together by Lou Scheimer and his team at Filmation Studios, along with Sherwood Schwartz as producer. For the most part, things were going well during the show's first season. But then, production on a shorter second season were underway when some of the kids decided that they didn't want to do the cartoon anymore. Filmation asked the kids to continue on their existing contracts for another five episodes in a shortened second season. The kids' original answer was no. 
Meanwhile, they were prodded on by their agent named, and I'm not making this up because it kind of sounds like a showbiz thing, but Harvey Schatz was the name of their agent. The kids stood their ground and refused to do the show. Filmation then threatened to sue both the Brady kids and their agent over breach of contract and to continue the show without their voices. Realizing that they were probably too young to not only be committing, but also understanding contract frauds, Mike Lookinland, a.k.a. Bobby, Eve Plum, the real Jan, and Susan Olsen, Cindy Brady, the youngest one with curls, agreed to the extended filmation contract, while Barry Williams, Greg, Christopher Knight, Peter, and Maureen McCormick... Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! ...did not, the latter being replaced by various voice actors in the filmation troupe and even Lou Scheimer's own children. All for a show that aired for only a season and a month and was probably the first telltale sign that the original series was starting to run out of steam. A lesson that they would, unfortunately, not be able to learn for many years. Are you working on your science project, too? I was going to start. You put it off, didn't you, Gina? I couldn't go to the store because my bike tires were flat. Because it's... Given the benefit of the doubt, we remind everybody that each of these picks are because of how dumb the shows are. Not necessarily because we hate them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we like them either. They're just dumb. Like, stupidly dumb. If there are any other shows that we forgot to mention, you know where to find us on our social feeds. And maybe, somewhere down the line, we'll circle back to this subject. In the meantime... I've had enough of suspension of disbelief to last me another afterlife. I'm hoping that our next subject is a little more down, or in this case, up to earth. Preferably six feet below the ground. Next time on Telehell, part one of our season finale, as we take a look at the first of two shows that were supposed to be prominent feathers in a certain peacock's cap in 1983, only for them to molt faster than Mother Nature would allow. Then Mom spooks Jennifer when she drops in from the grave. Time to get down and boogie! But is a seance Joey's idea of a good time on Jennifer's Left here, Friday. Until then... If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. In terms of going above and beyond the duty, we cannot thank Joe Blevins and Peter Freeville of These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast, enough for their input on the Gary Marshall cartoons. And thank you again for doing it on such short notice. And now, here's the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash Podcast. 